whether you put stimulus in or take stimulus out, how the hell do you reconcile the Northern European economies with the Southern European economies? And that is the fundamental problem that underlines all of this. Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review with Nigel Farage. Central banks are planning on withdrawing a record amount of financial stimulus that they've been using to keep financial markets propped up. I'm going to start by reading you a quote from Andrew Sheets of Morgan Stanley. A record amount of stimulus is about to be withdrawn from the global economy. From May 2022 to May 2023, Morgan Stanley economists expect G4 central bank balance sheets to shrink by 2 trillion US dollars, which is four times the largest 12-month decline ever from 2018 to 2019. Now, 2018 to 2019 was a pretty rough time for financial markets, the worst since 2008, I think, from memory. The mere prospect of this latest withdrawal of stimulus is already causing a lot of trouble in Eurozone sovereign debt markets. I'm going to read a pair of headlines here for you. From Reuters, Eurozone bond yields soar as rate hike expectations jump on hawkish ECB. And from the Financial Times, ECB rate expectations sting Greek and Italian government debt. Nigel, are you getting worried about a European sovereign debt crisis coming back? And if you are, can you outline how the political situation in the key economies, which I think Italy and Greece, has changed since uh, 2018 and also since 2011? Well, look, we couldn't go on forever with governments buying our own money. (laughs) I mean, that's effectively what we've been doing uh, ever since 2008. Uh, All sorts of programmes dressed up in all sorts of names like quantitative easing. Uh, I mean, frankly, it's almost been a sort of form of sort of balance sheet fraud that's been going on and it couldn't go on forever. And we all knew that. And that reality is now becoming, you know, beginning to hit. The problem, in particular with the Eurozone, and it's one that you and I have talked about, you've written about quite extensively, is whatever you do, whether you put stimulus in or take stimulus out, how the hell do you reconcile the Northern European economies with the Southern European economies? And that is the fundamental problem that underlines all of this. So withdrawal of stimulus clearly is going to be a massive problem in the South, but in the North, many, the Germans in particular, will take the view we must do this because we have to dampen down inflationary pressures within the economy. Um, You know, poor old Greece, I mean, you know, when you think that their economy has shrunk by almost a third since 2008 with very little sign of any genuine bounce back, Um, Italy is the oddest of all, because there was considerable political opposition uh, to the euro building in Italy. um, And suddenly, over the course of the last 18 months, that's disappeared. They've kind of conned themselves that this problem has gone away. Well, the problem hasn't gone away. Um, Short term, short term, you know, we're likely to see, yes, another big divergence in bond spreads between the north and the south. Of Europe. I mean, that's happening already. Um, we face a point again before too long where the taxpayers of Northern Europe are going to be told that they've got to transfer money 
to the south of Europe. And this wasn't desperately popular last time round. Where do I see the most resistance coming from? The Netherlands. I think the Netherlands is the place where you will see most resistance to this. Naturally, quite a Eurosceptic country. Doesn't apply to Denmark, of course, because they're not in the Euro. Otherwise, they would have been uh, the primary movers on this. But I see significant Dutch political resistance to this. Uh, I see grumblings in Germany, not much more. The French, well, they're so confused. They're not sure what's going on at the moment. Um, and of course, there's a presidential election coming uh, where, uh, and we'll have to see what happens. Um, you know, a lot depends who gets through to the second round of that French election. Uh, I mean, I kind of think it may be Pacres, the Conservative that gets through to the second round, in which case there won't be a big European debate. But if it's Le Pen or Zemmour, you can bet your life there will be a big European debate. So look, these are the same old pressures, the same old tensions coming back. A sovereign debt crisis is coming back in Europe. I don't know when, uh, but I kind of think, uh, given the sheer uh, amounts of stimulus being withdrawn, it might come sooner than we think. Yeah, it seems like the pandemic has papered over a lot of the problems that we faced in 2018 and 2019 by giving central banks an excuse to just do whatever it takes, in their own words, to you know, print as much money as it takes, low interest rates as much as it takes to try and pretend there is not a problem in the European sovereign debt market. One of the things I find striking about it all, though, is that the same people seem to be in charge. We've got Mario Draghi and Christine Lagarde in the key positions here, and uh, you know, and then Salvini's still there, and it, it's also familiar. Yeah, it is. I mean, Salvini, though, is weaker than he was. That was the point I was making a few moments ago. Uh, he's made rather a mess of it, in my opinion, uh, which is a protege of mine. I'm disappointed. Um, but yes, it's the same old gang, uh, as you say, you know, and, and of course, you know, they're linked hand in glove with the International Monetary Fund, um, based in Washington, supposed to be independent, but actually uh, all the way through have supported all the EU um, initiatives through its problems. Uh, you've equally also got an American administration now under Biden, which is pro the globalist European project. So I don't change my mind that in the end, this whole thing falls to pieces. It just politically, the pressure on that is not there. Now, if there was a big shock in the French elections, things might change. But I just, to be honest with you, I think Macron's going to win again. Ghastly though he is, I think Macron's going to win again. Do you think the perceived success of Brexit has changed that debate that's happening inside Europe about the various no. exits? No, no. And that's because the European media is relentlessly saying Britain's cut off, things are going terribly, uh, they're going down the tubes. It's quite extraordinary. If you see the narrative that's being pushed in France and Germany every single week about Brexit Britain, I mean, it bears no relation to reality. I mean, we can be frustrated and upset that we haven't taken more advantage of it. Interesting to note, Jacob Rees-Mogg this week has been made the cabinet minister in charge of Brexit opportunities. Why in God's name, we weren't doing that two and a half years ago when Boris first became PM, I don't know. Um, and let's wish, let's wish Jacob Rees-Mogg well in the job, uh, because there's a hell of a lot we can do in terms of simplification of laws, um, repeal of legislation, yet more work to do on trade deals, etc. cetera. Uh, we have not taken full advantage of Brexit. I think that's absolutely true. I think the ledger suggests that. And yet, despite that, 
Despite that, we see in areas like financial services, a, le a level of global confidence in London that's even greater than it was before the referendum in 2016. So there are some encouraging things happening, uh, despite the fact our government isn't doing a great job. You must be reading different German media to what I read because there's some irritated journalists and analysts out there in Germany wondering where all of this Brexit doom and gloom, you know, what, why none of it actually eventuated. But um, let's move on to some of that doom and gloom, actually. There was a story about uh, a think tank, a Westminster think tank called the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. And they pointed out that this collapse in trade has failed to materialize. And actually, there's been a significant improvement in the UK's net trade performance with the EU since the referendum nearly six years ago. Does this surprise you, Nigel? No, I mean, you know, that particular think tank are very much on the left of centre, very, very much a remain think tank. But, you know, they're being honest and frank and saying their worst fears have not been realised. I think the most significant thing, though, perhaps to draw attention to, is how our balance of trade with the world is changing. You know, there has been a diminution of trade with Europe overall and an airing of the deficit, which is quite nice. Uh, but actually what we're seeing is the percentage of business we're doing outside of Europe with the rest of the world is growing at a faster rate than it was before the referendum. And that says something about the mentality, not just of British businesses, but of global businesses. So, you know, again, I think we are actually heading, you know, take the big picture, the macro picture, I think we are heading in the right direction. And I say that because, I say that because everyone forgets this. The Eurozone is only 15% of global GDP. You listen to the BBC, you think the European market was the beginning and end of the world. It's not, it's 15%. So actually, longer term, it is that stuff with the other 85% that really matters. Yeah, I was listening to a video about uh, how the, the benefits of trade are geographic and the argument being made by, I can't remember who it was actually, was that because Europe's so close to us, the benefits of trade are very big. And that's the opposite. The whole point is that you trade with people who are far away, so their economies are completely different to yours. And that's where the biggest gains of trade are. Let's move on. And a lot of trade, of course, is just pushing a button. So, you know. Let's move on to a story that you mentioned on Tuesday to, to me in a, in a meeting. And at the time, I, I assumed you'd uh, misspoken and uh, had referenced something incorrectly because I still can't believe it. This, this is like how to lose an election. A modern PC term, it's misspoken. I can't bear it. Yeah, I mean, really, interesting. what's going on with energy? Um, you know, we find ourselves now importing 50% of our natural gas, despite huge reserves. We find ourselves importing four and a half million tons of coal every year, despite huge reserves. Uh, we find ourselves importing oil, uh, because despite the fact the price is over $90, we're not taking enough out of the North Sea, although a few more licenses, I'm pleased to say this week, have been granted. Um, so we find, oh, and by the way, we import 9% of our electricity from the French. Isn't that clever? Um, so we're in one hell of a mess. And the government's strategy as part of net zero is we're all to have heat pumps on our houses. The fact that it costs 20,000 quid for a lot of houses, it just by the by, because, you know, if you're a multimillionaire conservative policymaker living in Richmond, why would that worry you? Um, and the goldsmiths are, uh, even though they're friends of mine. And so we're going to be using more electricity with heat pumps, a lot more electricity, vast amounts of electricity with our cars. We use more electricity in our lives than ever before because digitization, computerization. 
And there is a there is a, a, an understanding now from electricity companies that we are going to face an electricity shortage. You know, if the electric cars initiative continues. So this week we've seen Octopus, one of the big suppliers, now incentivizing people not to use electricity during peak times to get us used to this idea that, you know, we have to ration out when we use electricity. And this is linked to smart meters, the aggressive drive to put smart meters into your home. I get a letter every couple of months saying that I must have a smart meter. My old meter is dangerous. It could be a fire, I, mean, I just chuck it in the bin. But the point about smart meters is that as and when we do face this crisis, because there's no plan, I mean, build a few more windmills in the North Sea. I mean, that's not gonna help the problem when the wind doesn't blow. And at some point in time, they will be able to regulate the amount of electricity you use through the smart meter in your home. And that is what they're getting us ready for. It seems almost too incredible to believe, but that is the total and utter horlicks successive governments since Blair have made of UK energy policy. And it needs a very radical rethink. Um, you know, I'm all for it. If we can get hydrogen, if we can get renewables that work without that constant taxpayer subsidy, which of course it of itself breeds inefficiency, complacency, and all of those things, then great. But at the moment, we haven't cracked that. Um, and I, I think a, a campaign for us to become self-sufficient on energy, self-sufficient on gas, coal, oil, uh, self-sufficient in terms of electricity production, I mean, to, to leave ourselves vulnerable to France, I mean, the whole thing's mad. Particularly if Macron gets a second term, he didn't like us very much. It's mad. Um, and so I think the whole net zero thing needs a complete debate and rethink. We've been pushed into this massive level. 25% of your electricity, but it's green subsidy. How do we ever get to that without a national debate? Well, because all the parties agree and all the media agrees. I mean, that's where we've been with this. So this is an area, Nick, that I personally am going to be pushing very hard over the course of the next few months to get us to have a proper, open, above the table, rational debate about all of this. We, 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 we really have got some big changes to put in place. Otherwise, the lights are going to go out. So many different angles I want to take on that. But the one that really strikes to me is, isn't it already too late? I mean, you've already used the word rationing there. Uh, which is familiar from the 70s, of course. But it seems to me that the, this crisis is playing out now and we're thinking about, you know, rejigging our energy policy. And you know, the, the French have just lowered their nuclear power output expectations, again, causing an electricity price spike. And it, it's all happening now. I mean, it, it, we should have had this debate quite a long time ago. Well, I don't disagree, Nick. And there were one or two of us trying to have this debate. But I, then again, I was having lots of other debates in public. And, and, and you can't, you know... You can't fight every battle on several fronts at once. Um, I mean, of course, as EU members, the drive was for a common energy policy within the European Union. And we were being pushed in that direction. Now that we're out, we can have that debate. And even if it is a bit late, well, it's never too late to start. It's never too late to begin making investments. It's never too late to rethink national strategy. And this obsession with net zero, even though our country only produces about point. 0.8% of global CO2 is doing us enormous self-harm in terms of our industries, particularly our manufacturing and engineering sectors, uh, is putting bills 
on people. I mean, you know, we're headed for fuel poverty. We're headed for fuel poverty on a really perhaps politically quite dramatic level. So I think the time now is right uh, to have this debate. And I suspect that what you'll see are a lot of very senior business voices and figures uh, backing this campaign. I feel like the same gap is opening up between the establishment and, and the everyday person that you've identified on the EU, that you've identified on migration issues and now yeah. on energy policy. Yeah. Nigel, thanks very much for joining us and everyone at home, thanks for watching. Thank you.